Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, uh, some of the most simple truths are the truths that we need to believe most sincerely. And as we are in the Gospel of Luke, we are finding truths that are not uh, flashy, not catchy. And yet it is the foundation upon which our salvation, our assurance, and our worship is based. And so we ask today, Lord, as we look at Jesus' baptism and Jesus' genealogy, that we are struck by the one who is better than anyone we could have ever imagined. In our own day, throughout all of history, and throughout eternity, that it was in the pleasure of God to reveal himself to us as Savior through Christ the Son. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So in our study in the Gospel of Luke, we're in the middle of Luke the historian's second movement. His first movement takes up chapter one and the first half of chapter two, and that's where we see the events and the narratives surrounding the birth of Jesus. The second movement stretches from the second half of Luke two through the beginning of Luke four, about halfway through Luke four. And in this, he is preparing for us everything Luke wants you to know about Jesus before his public ministry. These are the things and the truths and the realities which shape Jesus's public ministry. And he wants us to see something unique. We've spent, we will spend four weeks in these, uh, this chapter and a half. And the big point Luke wants you to see about Jesus is that he is unique. He is like us. He is born in the same way we are born of woman, and yet he was also born of the Holy Spirit. So he's like us, but he's not like us. He is in every way able to sympathize with us, and yet he is distinct from us. And that is the beautiful tension of what is called the hypostatic union. There's your 25 cent word. You could go to lunch afterwards. You could sound really cool. But it's super important for us to understand. And by the time we begin Jesus' public ministry, in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, if we've read carefully, Luke's readers will understand that Jesus is unlike anyone you could ever consider or dream up. He is altogether better. There's a a tragic song. It seems like grunge artists only write tragic songs. um, Written by Missoula's own prophetic band, Pearl Jam. And in it, they wrote this song called Better Man. And the lyrics of it describe this young woman who is trapped in a relationship with a man that she does not really love. And the chorus exposes her heart and tells the reason behind it. And she says, uh, she lies and says she's in love with him. And we as the listeners hear this song and we want to know if she's not in love with him, if he's not thinking of her well-being, if she could find somebody better, if this person won't care for her and give her what she needs, why does she continually lie to herself and stay in this relationship? And it's because the chorus continues to expose her fearful dilemma. And that's what it says. She lies and says she's in love with him because she can't find a better man. 
In other words, her life is miserable. She feigns happiness. She feigns contentment. She stays in a place where she knows she is not satisfied because she fears that someone better or something better might not actually exist and that that relationship and that understanding of reality is simply as good as it gets. At our community group this week, we had a guy's night, and one of the guys proposed a question that he was asked by an acquaintance. And the question was, what makes Christianity good? If you had to answer that question today, how would you answer that question? Why is it worth, in the very language of Jesus, leaving all you have in order to follow him? Why is the gospel of such wonderful treasure to you that Jesus' parable at the man who finds treasure buried in a field and then in his joy goes and sells all that he has to find that field is not the world's greatest overstatement, but in fact, we might humbly confess it is the world's greatest understatement. Why is the gospel good? Today, Luke wants you to see the answer to that question. And the answer is simply this, because Jesus is better. Today in Luke, we're to be in Luke chapter three, verses 15 through 38. In Luke three fifteen through 22, we're going to see that even when compared to the greatest prophet of the day, Jesus is better. And then verses 23 through 38, we're to see in the backdrop of triune pleasure, in the backdrop of the entire span of humanity, of kings and castles and celebrities and counselors and the rich and the resplendent of the glamorous and the glorified, Jesus is better. Why? Because of who he is and what he's come to do. And that's what we're gonna see today. Our big point today is just gonna be one simple statement and that is this, and that is that Jesus is the better savior because he is the better son. And we're going to have basically two points right there that we're going to look at. We're going to examine Jesus as the better Savior and Jesus as the better Son. So whatever your thoughts are on about Jesus, today Luke wants to elevate those, correct those, and enhance those with a portrait of who Jesus really is. Let's begin by looking at Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, that's John the Baptist, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and what we'll see later is Herod had taken the wife of his brother for his own, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to those evil things, and that he locked up John in prison. 
So here, this is a continuation of what we saw last week. John the Baptist is in the wilderness. People are coming to him and they're receiving baptism of repentance. And there really is kind of this this season of religious revival. If you can call back to your American history days in high school, things that might echo what America experienced in the first and second great awakenings in our own history. And all of this happened not as it was in America, which often came from the academies and college students in seminary. It didn't come from where Pilate and Caesar were sitting in their power in Rome. It didn't come where Herod and Philip were sitting as tetrarchs in Judea. It didn't come where Annas and Caiaphas were high priests in the newly rebuilt temple. It came in the wilderness to a man who had not much, but he had the word of God. And if you remember the scene that was painted for us back in Luke chapter one, the love of God and religious affection was not at a high point in Israel's history. And yet what we see here is something is going on to where those who once had no concern for God those who had no care and no interest in the Lord were all of a sudden concerned. In fact, this text opens with expectation. The people were expectant. They were excited. They were looking forward to what is to come. And more than that, they had passed over that simple line of kind of casual consumers. But they were being critical and they were thinking about it. One translation says that they were thinking carefully in their hearts. They were examining everything they saw, even looking at John and asking them this simple question. Is this man the Christ? That's a word you hear often in church, but do you know what Christ means? Is it just Jesus' last name? There's Tyler Valine and there's Michael Jordan and there's Jesus Christ and that's how it goes. That's often how we speak of him. But perhaps a more helpful way to think about this is to understand the word Christ as a title in the same way we understand the word Lord. It's not out of place for us to call God the Lord. And when we pray, we say, dear Lord, and Lord communicates a name and we understand that. But Lord is also a title, isn't it? It communicates one who is lording over, one who rules, one who reigns, one who is king. And so it's not simply a title that is static, but it's a title that communicates a role. So too is the word Christ. To be the Christ is to be the Messiah. So we can, and I will today, talk about Jesus, and I will use Christ. The New Testament authors do it all the time. But we need to not forget that as we confessed Jesus as Christ, we are actually confessing an active role that he is participating in. He is the Messiah. Christ is the Greek word of the Hebrew word, which means Messiah. That might not be helpful for us either. But Messiah is the word which simply means the Lord's anointed. The one who has special purpose and special calling. We see this back in Psalm 2, where David says this. says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That is against his Messiah. That is, if you're reading in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Lord's Christ. To be the Christ 
is to be the Messiah. To be the Messiah is to be the anointed one. To be the anointed one of God was to be the savior who would finally right the ship of God's kingdom. He would establish it. He would save his people. He would bring peace and security and contentment unparalleled. Think about the issues in your life. Issues perhaps relationally with you or your roommates or your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse. Think about, we took a wonderful road trip at a beautiful time in American history where we were paying $6 for gas in Arizona. Think about the problems economically. Think perhaps about physical problems. And think about all the things that you have dreamt of, that you have considered, that would maybe solve that issue. That is what it feels like to long for the Messiah, to long for the person who has something to give, something to solve, and can bring us into a place of healing. At this point in history, with whatever John the Baptist is doing and whatever message he's preaching, people are beginning to long for that healing, to long for that salvation in every aspect of their life. And naturally, at this point in time, the person who they are looking to, to be that Messiah, who they are considering thoughtfully in their heart, is John the Baptist. And this is our first point today, is that in contrast to where the people go, what John wants us to see is that Jesus is the better Savior. Jesus is the better Savior. John is going to answer these seekers by pointing them to Jesus. But first, it pays a benefit for us to understand why these people are turning to John. Because in seeing why they're turning to John, we can actually understand why our own hearts turn to things which are not Jesus. John was a powerful communicator. We saw that last week in the first part of chapter three. He is fiery. He is passionate. He would have the world's greatest podcast if that were in the day right now. And even though he was at times seen as an oddity, other gospels tell us he ran around in the wilderness wearing animal skin, eating locusts and honey. There was something magically entertaining about him. Matthew alludes that King Herod actually was infatuated with John. He imprisoned him partly for his own benefit so that he could have this man. There was something about this prophetic charisma of John that attracted people to him. But more than this, this kind of attraction isn't merely human and superficial. It's actually something that was prophesied. Do you remember way back when, I think in November, when we were in Luke chapter 1, and the angel appeared to Zechariah, John's dad, and he prophesied what Zechariah would do. Look at what he predicted in verses 16 and 17. He said, he, that is John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Part of John's role of preparing the way for Jesus to come was to be a turner of hearts, to create this, something which Jonathan Edwards called religious affection, this angst in someone's heart where they don't quite know what's wrong, but they know something needs to change, that they're missing out, that there's something bigger, something better, something healing in the world. And anytime our hearts are stirred to seek, for whatever those portraits of salvation I just asked you to think about, 
it might be that the Lord is actually at work in your heart. And what John was doing is he was bringing to the forefront of a mind that was captivated by Rome's increased power and might, where there was this brashness and this boldness built up around the rebuilt Jerusalem, he was bringing life and death, salvation and judgment. He was causing them to confront their own fragility and their own need. And in the face of that, hearts became expectant. Perhaps you've seen this in our own day. Coming out of three, going on 30 years of COVID, how many of us had conversations with our coworkers or with our neighbors about life and death? But what's the measure of a life well-lived? About the comfort we provide to those who have unexpected losses physically, financially, vocationally. Consider the war in Ukraine. All of a sudden, that one dude who you followed since high school who makes YouTube videos is now the moral philosopher. (laughs) Trying to discern what is good and what is bad. But as we begin those discussions, anybody with a sense of sobriety realizes that unless there is a supernatural or a meta-narrative beyond our human experience, we can't really answer questions of good and of evil unless we make it individual to us. And if we make it individual to us, if what's good and what's evil is dependent upon me, then our world will be full of not dozens, not hundreds, but thousands of wars like that in Ukraine because we are limited even in our ability to say, this is what is good. And such events have caused us to look around for what? For a Christ. For someone or for something which makes sense of our longing for morality, which brings purpose into our easily distracted and disillusioned life, that tells us it will be okay And as soon as we find those, we build around it. We just drove through Las Vegas. As you come over this hill, you see the strip in all of its glory, whatever you might call it. We've built cities around the Christ of entertainment to distract, to delight, and to dull. And then we come here to Missoula, We come through the Hellgate Canyon. There are no skyscrapers and no Paris towers and no roller coasters, but there are glorious mountains and we have built a home in the midst of it to enjoy it, to take it, and to have it. Be captivated by it. How many of us in our zeal to find what's next or in the pain of what is presently missing are quick to anoint for ourselves at every step and every turn Christ's of our own? messiahs and anointed things. Little bits of security that bring us peace that maybe in our own kingdom, in our own sphere, in our own domain, we might have security. We might have assurance. And what we need to be honest about is many of these things are good things. Things which God made. We live among beautiful mountains which God made for himself. We turn to food which God designed to sustain us. We make much of that. 
We embrace sex as defined by ourself to experience however we want when that at its core was given to us by God with an instruction manual that glorifies him and protects those around us. We retreat into our families, which God provided for refuge, but we make our families to be our place of well-being and salvation. And here, these are people turning to John, who was God's own prophet, who Jesus himself will say in Luke chapter 7, that among those born among women, none is greater than John the Baptist. John was good. Families are good. Mountains are good. Sex, as God defines it, is good. Food is good. But when good things become God things, danger follows. But just because we or our neighbors might have that scratch of the Messiah lingering in our soul, just because we realize we might not be able to define what that Christ is, but we need a Christ, doesn't mean that we naturally turn to where the Christ is found. In fact, as we just saw, what most naturally happens is we turn to the gifts of God instead of the God who gives the gifts. These crowds were drawn to what God gave in John, but when they began to thoughtfully consider in their hearts, John spoke. He opened his mouth. What if all of the things, all of the Christs you have in this world opened up and spoke? What would they say to you. Because I think what we see in this picture of John is they would say, we're not it. The one who is coming is mightier than I. Wouldn't that be great? But isn't it actually true? Consider Psalm 19 verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare why Missoula's housing market is increasing. <laughs> the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims the wonder of being in big sky country. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, that glory proclaiming handiwork showing, goes out through all of the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. From its rising to the end of heaven and its circuit to the end of them, there is nothing hidden from his heat. The heat of the sun, the breath that we breathe, the food we consume is meant to point us to the one who has occasioned it. But it's not merely God's creation which is abused by being seen as an end to itself. 
We can also do this with people. Good people. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is going to help this centurion named Cornelius. And he does. And Cornelius falls and begins to worship Peter. And what does Peter say? He's like, stop it. I'm a man just like you. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas healed a person. And many people in the city began to worship Paul and Barnabas. And what they say is, do not worship us. For we are just like you. Most surprising, in Revelation, John, the one who Jesus loved, the one who walked with Jesus and saw him transfigured in all of his glory on top of that mountain, encounters an angel with a prophetic message of the new heavens and the new earth. And what does John, who saw Christ in the flesh, do? He begins to fall down and worship the angel, and the angel says, I am not him. I am closer to you as a fellow created being than I am to God. The whole creation from mountains to bread bulls act joyfully like a groom coming out for his wedding, like a strong man, not docilely, not silently, but with joy to proclaim We are not it, but there is one who is. There's a beautiful scene in this show my wife and I often watch. It's this climax of this romance that has been building throughout the show. We're at long end. One of the main characters is going to ask his girlfriend to marry him. It's what the writers have been working towards. At this point, there is no other option for you, the viewer. You know this is what it must be. And so as this proposal unfolds, she's led to this door and there lined up are all of her coworkers in a row like a tunnel. And at the end is the one who we know she's going to marry. And what happens is she begins to walk this gauntlet and the first coworker she encounters says, will you marry me? She says, no. She takes another step forward. And the next coworker says, will you marry me? And she says, no. And see, the beauty of this is that we as the viewer understand, of course not. Of course she wouldn't marry that individual. And the, the one who's going to propose, who set this up, why did he do this? Doesn't that seem incredibly risky? Well, not if you know that she loves you. And what about these coworkers? How caught off guard would it have been if she got to number one and she's like, sure. The only confidence they had in asking that question was they knew it would have been out of place. It would have been preposterous when the one who she loved is right there on a little further and your heart can finally and fully rest. For many of us, the longings in our hearts which remind us of our need for a Christ are so strong and so real and so deep that oftentimes the first encounter we have with a gift of God that gives the smallest amount of love or peace or acceptance 
we cling to it as if we have found the one our soul loves. All the while, creation itself and all of God's faithful people are not actually issuing a proposition to us at all. They are not calling us to themselves, but they are saying, go a little further. Look up and see the one who comes. See the joy of Christ before you. John turns all of us in a moment to the person of Jesus Christ. And he does this precisely because it's true. Jesus is unparalleled. Yet for a moment, we get a little more insight into our own heart. Don't we see John's humility in this moment? Here is John preaching the prophetic word of God, doing good work in calling people to repentance. At this point, Jesus' public ministry hasn't even begun yet. He might begin to think that this might be it. And all these people are flocking towards him. And if they began to say, are you the one? I imagine at that moment, he knew what was held out for him. In fact, the crowds tried to take Jesus away later on and make him king by force. Here, the man wandering in the wilderness eating bugs and locusts probably had a menu board presented to him with far more than birds and honey on it. Augustine, in his autobiography, uh, put up this hypothetical situation. He said, if I could disbelieve what is true, but be loved by the masses, and the other option be to actually believe what is true and be hated by the masses, he said, my heart would want to knowingly believe the lie in order to feel the praise of man. Have you ever felt that in your home, in your relationships, in your work, maybe even in your discipleship? John sidesteps that trap with humility. Why? Because he knows what is true about Jesus. You see, nothing produces humility like knowing Jesus in truth. Nothing is more humbling to one's own self than holding up all of who you are in tension with all of who Jesus is. And that's exactly what John does for us. He points out two distinctions between Jesus and himself. And the first is that Jesus is of greater might and worth. And the second is that Jesus is the one who saves and who judges. Look with me at Luke 3, 16 through 18. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So the first thing John wants those looking for salvation, those in expectancy for the Christ to consider is that Jesus is worthy of more than anything in the world. He's of unparalleled might, in unparalleled worth. And 
John actually turns a cultural anecdote of its day on its head here when he talks about untying a sandal. It might be kind of lost to us, but during that time, kind of the religious system was there were rabbis and there were disciples. And to be a disciple of a rabbi was to literally put yourself in submission to him. It was said that the the rabbi should not do anything for his, uh, or the, the disciples should not do anything for his rabbi that a slave would not do for his master. But they drew one caveat. The disciple of a rabbi should not untie the sandal of the rabbi. Why? Because it was absolutely humiliating. In that day, everyone wore nasty chacos and shopped at the good food store. And so their feet were just caked in goo and they were gross and disgusting. And if this disciple was to someday be a rabbi himself, this move would stain his ministry. He would be seen as one who was humiliated beyond all repute. And John here says, I will not even untie his sandal. But it's not because John would have been dishonored. It's because Jesus would have been dishonored. John here says, Jesus is so far above all other objects of worth and all objects of might that even I, God's chosen prophet, if I were to untie his sandal, it would be offensive to Jesus. I'm not worthy enough to do that. He is so much greater than I. You see, if we want to understand what Jesus does in his salvation, we must understand who Jesus is in his unparalleled nature. I'll say that again. If we want to understand what Jesus does in his salvation, we need to understand who Jesus is in his unparalleled nature. This is key to anyone who wants to have hope in redemption. In fact, in Revelation, we see this idea of Jesus' unparalleled nature is what is constantly being waited for. Where finally, When Jesus comes in Revelation before the elders and the creatures, Jesus takes the scroll and what do they say as if they've been waiting for all eternity? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal. No one else, not John, not me, not your hiking guide, not your sports ball team, not your spouse, not your kids, Only Jesus is able to do this because he's not only innate and holy other in terms of his worth, but he has come to do something astounding, something that no one else is able to do. What will the Christ do? John tells us he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. For those who are faithful, he will mend your roots. He will see to it you produce fruit. He will gather you for safekeeping into his barn for all eternity, keeping you for the table fellowship with the Lord. But for those who do not believe, for those who do not produce fruit, for those who do not repent, there will be judgment, eternal fire, and punishment unending. For some, he will save and sanctify through faith and repentance, and others he will judge and condemn out of their lack of faith and repentance. This is quite literally, if this is your first time here, this baptistic message of hellfire and brimstone. But did you see what Luke called this message? Look again at verse 18. 
So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. This message of the Holy Spirit and fire was part of the gospeling, <laughs> right? Luke doesn't use the word gospel as a noun. It's this unique verbal noun. And so he is, what is the good news? Everything John is doing here is the gospel. <laughs> He's showing us the gospel instead of telling us the gospel. This is good news. Why is it good news? Because apart from this, we come to the reality that everyone will be baptized. Everyone will be washed. And if we all with unchanged hearts see the Lord, we will be washed by the fire of judgment for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone gets baptized in your own death or in the death of another. And this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is worthy of all things, there is another baptism available. That option A doesn't have to be the only option. That is the baptism where the Holy Spirit doesn't labor to condemn, but labors to redeem. Where the blood of Christ doesn't speak to judge us, but instead to free us. The one where the refiner's fire doesn't destroy eternally, but for a moment, painful as it is, it begins to burn off what is of low worth so that at the end of all things, we might shine with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This option is good news. This is the pearl of greatest value. Our lives are dictated by value, aren't they? My wife and I made the mistake of going to Amazon and finding a robot vacuum for like 95 cents. Right? You've probably done the same thing. You're like, this will probably work instead of the $300 one. And so you get it, and you know what it did? It vacuumed my floors. You can't argue that. It just didn't do it very well. <laughs> it was terrible at it. But yeah, there was less dirt than when it began. So what did my wife and I do? We bought a better one, a more expensive one. And you know what? It did better. That's the danger of gifts, isn't it? You might have a job that seems dissatisfying because the payer doesn't satisfy, and you might be able to find a better job. You might have a relationship with pornography or with sex outside of marriage that doesn't seem satisfying, and you might be able to alter that or tweak that a little bit, and you might actually find something that's satisfying. That's the danger of sin, isn't it? That it actually satisfies. And this, being able to leave something and find another of greater value, would be good news if your greatest problem were dirty floors and unfulfilled sexual longing. But that is not our greatest problem. That is a value we cannot supplement. While there are vacuums which clean better, some washings which remove dirt better, some words of affirmation that heal better, some mountains that stand higher, some kids who do more, some jobs that pay higher, even some preachers who talk sweeter, there is no Christ who can save better. Why? Because there is no other name given among men by which we can be saved because our greatest problem is our sin and we can add nothing to that problem but only the one of unparalleled worth. Only the one who brings the baptism with Holy Spirit and fire can do it. 
And for those who, like these religious seekers, stare out to a world of options and stand-in saviors and wild, sensational talkers, here, see what John points you to. He points you to the climax of Scripture, the person of Jesus Christ. Would you come to him? If you still don't understand why he might be worthy of that, John continues. And this is where we begin to see why he is of greater value what adds to his salvation. Luke continues to show us not just because Jesus is the better savior, but it's because Jesus is the better savior because he is the better son. He's the son of God. We see this in two passages. One shows the pleasure of the father and the son. The other shows the need of humanity for the son. First, look with me at Jesus' baptism in Luke 3, 21 through 22. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So because all of you were studious note takers last week when Johnny was preaching, you know that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was for those who had conviction of sin and they wanted to signify a new change, a new start in their life. It symbolized that there was something that would wash away impurity and this was meant, remember John's role, to prepare, to lay the foundation for what would come. In other words, his washing was meant to prepare them for the one who would actually wash. And here right after that is that one. Here is Jesus Christ who does that washing. And now when we celebrate baptism, we don't simply celebrate, as Peter says, the removal of dirt from the body. We celebrate that the only washing comes when one is buried, not on your own, but with Christ Jesus and raised with him in newness of life. But the question remains for all you wondering theologians in here, the burning question I know you're asking is why did Jesus need to get baptized? Because we know that he was sinless. Did he too need to be washed? And this is why this Trinitarian scene is so important to us. The Trinity, just last night I was tucking my kids in, my two oldest girls and asked a question about God and who is God. And we, I asked them a question. I said, how many persons are there in God? And they said, there are one person, or there is one person. In, there are, wow. Okay, just give me a second, okay? This is just, it's a scratch on my notes, okay? There are three persons in one God. Are we good? Did I get that right this time? There are three persons in one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. We don't have three gods. We have one God who exists in three persons. And this is not just something for nerds. This is really important. And we see that importance here in this text. Look again at verses 21 and 22 and see if you could see these three persons interacting at one time. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So what do we see here? We see a glimpse into the eternal triune existence of the Trinity. It's not that God existed and then Jesus existed and then the Holy Spirit existed. That's wrong. Here we see all of them interacting together. We see a blessed communion where God the Son was talking to his Father And then God, the Holy Spirit, descended in physical form like a dove to rest on the Son. And then God, the Father, audibly spoke to the Son. 
And what we see here is we are invited to see first and foremost this relationship which has beautiful community, fellowship, and peace. Have you ever met a friend for coffee and you go into the coffee shop and all of a sudden you realize your friend has other friends there that you don't know? And they're like, hey, Carl! And they're like, get out their class rings and they slap each other on the back and you're like, they share something I don't. That's this. We don't have this with God. Jesus does. Something that existed in all eternity past. But here's the beauty of redemption. Jesus invites us into it. He invites us into this community restoring fellowship relationship. And we see the importance of this this scene with Jesus in what God the Father says to him. This relationship says what is probably said for all eternity. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, we don't really learn much new at face value. We already knew Jesus was the son of God. We saw that in Luke chapter two with Jesus at the temple. The Holy Spirit came and descended on Jesus, but that wasn't Jesus' first encounter with the Holy Spirit, was it? In Luke one, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't live the first 30 years of life Holy Spirit-less, and then the Holy Spirit came when he was age 30. He was full of the Holy Spirit. So what's happening in this text? Here we see the divine pleasure of the entire Trinity in the person of Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, fully sustained by the Holy Spirit and fully pleasing to the Father. Many people were baptized by John. We have baptized many people here. I pray for many more. And this never happened, did it? No audible voice, no descending dove. So why does it happen for Jesus? Because he is the son of God. (laughs) Seems like the obvious answer, but it's the right one. And it's because he perfectly obeyed his father and he was sinless. And so when he submitted himself to the ritual of washing, what does God the father say? He says, I'm already pleased. I am pleased with you. You have no lack, no imperfection, no rebellion, no sin that that stains. You are acceptable to me and my soul delights in you. Jesus had no need for baptism to receive God's pleasure. He had no need to have his sins removed so he could be restored to perfect fellowship. Jesus had all of that already. So why was Jesus baptized? For us. For our sake. The prophet Isaiah says that he, the Messiah, would be counted among the transgressors. He was identified with the repentant, not for his sake, but for the sake of all who need to repent, for the sake of all who have no right to the Father's pleasure. Not only does this make the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus, the sinless one, takes our sins so that we might have his righteousness, it's actually our hope for the doctrine of assurance. Here Jesus goes before us, before you, and shows that if we are covered by his blood, if Jesus's DNA by faith becomes our DNA, your whole reality has changed. That God the Father is pleased with you. How many of you have tried to earn the pleasure of your boss or your spouse? Or how many kids in here have tried to earn the pleasure, the delight of your parents? And don't we actually have success in those areas? We can do it. We can get their pleasure. The problem isn't getting it. The problem is what? Keeping it. (laughs) 
we often disappoint. People's hearts often change. We sometimes do things that cause an individual's pleasure to turn to displeasure. Or what is most often true, we feel that we've done something wrong enough that we've lost the privilege of deserving that pleasure. We spoke too much, we did too little. Now the only hope we had for peace and acceptance is gone. But here, look at the work of the already and ever-pleasing Son. The Son who came to save For those who follow John's call to repentance in the first half of chapter three are now led to the source of repentance and pleasure in John's baptism of Jesus Christ. Didn't we see this triune interaction in verses 21 and 22 between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit? Where are we in that story? We're not in it, okay? (laughs) Bible reading tip, you weren't there. But look at something beautiful in Romans five, verses one through five. Here is the fruit of the work of the Son. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of glory. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Here is the beauty of salvation in the Son, that all of the Trinitarian interaction in John 3 with the exclusive person, the unparalleled King of Jesus, is now applied to the believer in Romans 5 through Jesus. That we have peace with the Father. That he is pleased with us. And on account of the Son, the love of the Father is poured out on you through the work of the Holy Spirit. Here is pleasure. Here is salvation. Here is the hope you've always wanted. Here is when displeasure and sin seems to cloud your vision and distort your life and you wonder if your Christ is enough. You look to Jesus whose sacrifice never comes to an end, who daily lives to make intercession for you so that you might stand in the pleasure of the Father. Here's why it's worth giving our lives to Jesus because in Jesus, the whole of the Trinity is pleased. If you rejoice in Jesus, if you sing the songs we're about to sing, let this be a check to your joy. Are you as pleased with Jesus as God the Father is? Does your heart delight as one who was saved by Jesus more than one who participated in salvation with Jesus? This is the Jesus we've been waiting for. And this is where the long list of names I made Johnny read finally comes to bear. Because not only is the pleasure of God in Jesus, but the hope of all humanity is laid there as well. Since Johnny already read it, I'm not gonna belabor us, and because I've said a lot today and we have a meeting afterwards, for your sake, I'm gonna spare you the son ofs. (laughs) But it's all there in your Bible, and I'm glad Johnny did read it, because when you read it specifically out loud, it has this effect. This effect of this is really long. (laughs) And it begins right after Jesus was declared the son of God by the father that now Luke traces the origin of Jesus, the son as with thought of Joseph, back to the son of Zerubbabel, back to the son of Boaz, back to the son of David, back to the son of Jacob, 
back to the son of Isaac, back to the son of Abraham, back to the son of Adam, who was the son of God. All of human history is waiting for the hope of this son. Adam wasn't enough. Abraham wasn't enough. David wasn't enough for those expectant and weary in heart. But here, almost in Luke 3.38, we have a re-articulation of Genesis 1. In the beginning, God. And in Jesus, God has come not only as the Son, but as our brother, as the one who will bring hope to the hopeless if we cling to the Son if we see that it is him and him alone in terms of his worth and his work, which brings us the pleasure of God. And here's why we need it. There was this really weird interjection in this story, wasn't there? With Herod and John. John's like, all evil is going to go away. Jesus has got a big fork and he's gonna thresh it all. And then what happens? John is put in prison by an evil man. This side of death, we wrestle with hope in the Son because while Jesus' work was begun on the cross, it is not yet finished. And questioning hearts and evil people will always wage war against your hope. They will always cause you to doubt, is this the one? Even when the Christ of this world seem large, will you see that Jesus is the Christ. There's an old hymn that maybe you've sung before. I think Jeremy Camp redid it, um, which means it's canon now. Uh, But I was looking at the background of it this year, or yeah, this year, that's true, is this week, also this year. Um, And it actually was birthed out of black enslaved African-American Christians. And in looking at this pain and in questioning their hope, and oftentimes a sad part of evangelical history, hope that was crushed by people who claimed to love Jesus. They came up with a song and they confessed this, in the morning when I rise, give me Jesus. When in sorrow, hear me pray, give me Jesus. When I'm dying, hear me cry, Give me Jesus. When I'm rising, hear me shout. Give me Jesus. When in heaven, we will sing. Give me Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is one person. There is one hope where the expectant and the searching can turn to find peace. And it is in Jesus, the Son. There's one person which brings peace when Herod's door slams shut, and it's Jesus, the Son. There is one place where the Father's pleasure is held out for us, and it is Jesus, the Son. There's one message we give our lives to point others towards. It is Jesus, the Son. There is one thing infinitely better than all we could ever think or imagine, one object of greatest pleasure and unending treasure, and it is Jesus, the Son.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would not miss Jesus in his unparalleled beauty and distinction. We would not only see it, but we would actually acknowledge it by repentance and faith, by turning and being saved. Lord, I pray 